Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my conversation with Sarah Kunst, Managing Director of Clio Capital. Clio Capital is an early stage VC fund focused on the pre-seed and seed stages. Some of their investments include 42 Birds, Athena, and Love Wellness. Without further ado, here's Sarah. So tell me how Clio Capital came together. I had been an investor at a very big fund. I was an analyst at a $1.7 billion venture fund. And then after that, I started a company in the sports and fitness space, ran that for a few years, did angel investing as a scout with Sequoia um, while I was doing that. And when I was thinking, you know, that company uh, ran out of money and as I was shutting it down, was thinking about what to do next. I was looking at bigger funds, didn't really see anything that was a great fit. And then, you know, an investor friend of mine said, well, why don't you start a fund? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll invest. And, and so decided to do that. And so that was kind of the genesis of Clio. And we're a generalist firm. I invest in kind of two main focus areas. One is sort of the future of income, which has a lot to do with consumer in that, you know, every Etsy seller and Uber driver and Instacart shopper, you know, they, they are making money often, you know, most of, if not all of their money that they make outside of a regular kind of W2 nine to five job. And all of our lives as consumers would be greatly lacking without those kinds of services. So I invest in in companies, you know, that help people make money in that way. And then also help people who make money in that way, manage it, right? Because if you have get a paycheck, then you probably also have health insurance and you don't have, you have to sign one paper once a year and you get all of that. Whereas if you're a freelancer, you know, you don't, you have to figure out taxes on your own health insurance, kind of everything where you're going to get your next client or sell your next sale all on your own. So invest in that space. And then the other space I invest in mostly is called complicated consumer. And so complicated consumer, I always say, picture your kitchen table, right? And your kitchen counter and all of those 
bills and everything that are stacking up and all of those things that you don't want to deal with, but you as a consumer do have to deal with. So I don't invest as much in the kind of sexy part of consumer, right? I love suitcases and face creams probably much more than the next person, but but I buy those things. I don't really invest in that space. The space I invest in are the things that we're not as excited to spend our money on as consumers. So estate planning, divorce, legal stuff, student loan debt, HSAs, FSAs, 401ks, you know, mental health, all of these things, finance, insurance, legal stuff that we still are very much consumers and individuals when we have to, to buy them or interact with them. It's just a lot less fun than going to buy a new dress. Absolutely. And I mean, especially on the complicated consumer side, I mean, I see the need for sure in, um, in both sectors on the complicated consumer side, though, these are obviously things that consumers obviously don't want to do. So it's a real pain point. So I definitely can sense the opportunity there. Walk me through a little bit about your your due diligence process and your check size. Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, I invest in pre-seed and pre-seed means that the due diligence, there's not always a lot. There's usually a ton of diligence you can do on the space. And there's always diligence you can do on the people, right? Are these the right people? Are they good people? You know, do I, I'll never forget once I was doing diligence on a founder and it turned out that he'd been arrested for basically running a a small Ponzi scheme. And so I didn't invest because I didn't feel like that was going to be a, a high caliber founder in terms of their moral compass. So there are those kinds of diligences you do. What you normally can't really do at pre-seed, right, is the kind of digging in to learn about the company because the company has probably existed less than a year, right? And so in terms of like revenue, they don't have any growth. If you go from zero to 100, that's 100% growth, right? But that's not a very big number. And so it's, it's a lot of feeling through you know, why do I believe in this market? Why do I believe in this opportunity? Why I believe? Why do I believe this is the right approach for the opportunity? And then why do I believe this is the right team? Who else is doing it? Are they going to do it better? Do they have some sort of competitive advantage? Like why them? And then you sort of align those things. And then you look at the company and you say, well, what have they started to build so far? Right? But it normally, if they haven't started to build anything, for me, that's a bit of a red flag because you can always, particularly on the more consumer side, right? You can always put up a free landing page or an Instagram page to start getting interest in signups. Like you can always do something. If you're an engineer, you can start coding. So when there's really, you know, if you're a designer, you can build a prototype, right? So if there's literally nothing, I'm generally a little bit scared off because I think that if you can't get started with no money, then me giving you money, it's not going to get you started. It's just going to kind of get burnt. So I want to see a little bit of that, but really it comes down to the founders and why I think these founders and the opportunity and why I think this is the right opportunity. And I think in pre-seed investing, a lot of it too is, is falling in love a little bit with the founder, with the opportunity, with the market, and just feeling like, you know, there's something special here. And so that's definitely a part of it as well. And then in terms of check size, my check size varies, you know, I'll go as low as 50,000, I'll go as high as as 500,000. And a lot of that has to do with the round dynamics, right? So if I find a founder really early and I really love what they're doing, I can go bigger and I might be be the majority of their round. If I find them through another friend who's investing as well and there's only a little bit of the round left and I'm still excited about it, then I still might invest, but it'll be a smaller check. What's your advice for companies that might be located in secondary and tertiary markets that are currently trying to fundraise? 
I mean, I think this is the best time ever for that because it doesn't matter if you're two blocks away or 2,000 miles away, right? It's still hard to invest in other countries for a lot of U.S. fund managers because we just, you know, our funds are not set up to do that. But there's never been a time where it matters less where someone is. Got it. Now, do you believe that, and, and this is another kind of question that has come up on the show, that you can build like a venture scalable business located in like a tertiary market, for example? Yeah. I mean, they're everywhere, right? So so to say no would be to say that, you know, like politics in, in Salt Lake City doesn't exist, right? And last time I checked, it existed and exited to the tune of $8 million. So it seems to be possible, right? And I always think that's kind of a funny question because that's like asking, you know, do you believe that cats exist? Like you can ask me if I like cats or not. Not, right, to which I will not answer because I don't want to offend anyone. But of course, cats exist, right? And my feelings about cats do not change whether or not they exist as animals in the world. And to me, you know, the question of, oh, can you build a tech company in X? The answer is yes, right? You look at Estonia, which most Americans could not find on a map. A lot of people listening are going to be like, I thought Estonia was a city in Missouri. No, Estonia is a very small country in Europe, and they're one of the most digitally native countries in the world because they've had massive tech exits. So so you could build a company anywhere and talents evenly distributed as, as people are very fond in this industry of saying, it's just that, that historically opportunities haven't been. So certainly I've always invested outside of Silicon Valley the same way I've always invested inside of Silicon Valley. And if more investors during COVID are, are starting to see the value in that, great. I welcome them to join me. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. I know like another big debate, this is especially geared towards, you know, founders that really don't come from an investor network. And a big debate has been the warm intro, whether some investors have had on the show say you need a warm introduction. Other investors say no, a cold outreach, I will certainly respond to. What's your advice for founders that are looking to fundraise that don't have an investor network and their approach on this subject? The vast, vast, vast majority of founders don't have an investor network, right? Like even if, if you work at Google or something, how many employees does Google have? 40,000. And the idea that you actually know a ton of investors is just super not likely. And even if you do, the idea that they're in the right... So say you got your MBA at Stanford, right? Lots and lots of VCs come through Stanford. But even then, lots and lots, right, is maybe there were 10 in your class, which maybe means you know... And, and like certainly that's like nothing, but say that you didn't know three of them, you didn't like two of them, and then two others aren't in your industry, now you're down to like three, right? And so there are certainly are people like me where I had, I'd worked in venture before I started a company, but that's not the case for 99.9% of people, right? Regardless of race, gender, where you live, anything. And even us, right? You and I aren't old friends. We've never met each other before. You cold emailed me, I think, and I responded, right? And the reality is that's a really doable way to get to people. And so I certainly take take cold intros. Um, like I was saying before, referrals are really important to me if I'm going to like be your friend or roommate. They're not important to me if I'm going to invest in you um, because I, I'm going to find out the things I need to know based on my diligence, not based on kind of a third party opinion. But that being said, I think that if people are concerned about warm intros, if people feel like their fundraise would go better if they had warm intros, then you know my advice is great, go warm things up. Everyone right now is stuck at home. Everyone is spending too much time on the internet. So go and follow somebody on Twitter or Instagram and start, you know, I've met so many people on Twitter just by talking to them there, right? Or if a VC is like, hey, thinking about if you have a 
ed tech startup, right? And a VC is tweeting about every VC right now is tweeting about like, what do I do with my kids? Right. So then like go, go through and start following a bunch of VCs and look at their questions about education and respond to them and say, Hey, you know, I saw this article, thought you'd find it really interesting that talks about, you know, how to balance screen time with distance learning. And if you do that a few times over the course of a couple of weeks, and then you show up at a, a talk or something that VC is doing on Zoom and ask them a question, then they're going to like see that. They're going to feel like they know you. They're, they're highly likely if you tweet at them and say, hey, you know, I'd love to get your advice on the startup I'm working on. They're highly likely to respond and say, great, you know, DM me. We'll set up a time to talk. Right. Or maybe they respond and say, actually, don't invest in that sector. And that's fine, too. But there's such an ability in this moment to warm things up where you don't have to go break into the Silicon Valley Country Club. You can just go on Twitter. You can see where they're talking and see which panels they're on. I, you know, I'm an investor in a company called Lunch Club, and that's their whole business model. Right. It's um, I'll, I'll give you a link for the show notes, but it is literally an AI service where you can go on. It's free. You get an invite, which, which everyone listening to this will have from the show notes. And you go on and you sign up and you can say, hey, you know, I want to meet with investors or I want to meet with potential co-founders and potential customers and their AI algorithm will find the people who are perfectly suited for you. And you can meet with people from all over the world. And so when you have tools like that at your disposal, when there are all of these things, particularly in this moment, it's hard to imagine, even if you don't already have that network, that you can't build it pretty quickly. And the reality is very, very, very few people raise their first entire venture round just from people they're friends with. It tends to be people who are investing in a relevant space and you can find those people online and you can get in front of them and you can warm things up and then you don't have to worry about a cold intro. I know we discussed your two areas of focus. Let's dive in a little deeper if that's all right. The future of income and complicated consumer. I'd imagine that both of these big kind of pillars that you invest in, that they've both accelerated during COVID, but would love to know just a few examples of within these two sectors, if that's all right, how COVID has really affected both. For what I invest in, right, the reality hasn't made a huge impact. I don't invest in a ton of direct-to-consumer, which means that while my personal buying of party dresses and high heels is sadly reduced, I don't invest in that space. And so it doesn't really impact how I invest. I don't invest in, you know, real estate or, or hospitality or nightclubs. And so it hasn't made a huge difference there, right? And those are really the things that are impacted. And certainly some of my companies are doing really well. One of my very, 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 I think it's actually the only exception to my non-direct consumer investing rule right now is a company called Hill House Home. They sell home goods, right? So bedding, sheets, all of that. They also sell nap dresses, which are kind of like the modern nightgowns, right? As you can expect, all of a sudden, when everybody got locked up in their houses in March, they started to look around and realize their old sheets from college and wearing like an old t-shirt they got free at a conference to bed every night was maybe not the, like living their best life. And so that company's done really well. And so that's my only consumer bet, direct to consumer, pure play. And it's worked out really well because that's exactly what people need in this moment. But a lot of my other companies, you know, they're certainly doing well during COVID, but that will also fade, right? So if you are like Uber Eats is not one of my companies, but as an example, right? Uber rides are way down. Uber Eats is way up. Once as COVID is eventually 
gone, then those two things will probably kind of go back to where they were in, in reverse. And, and so there is a COVID bump for some companies, but it's for the most part not necessarily going to last. But because I invest so early, the companies that seem to have been hardest hit, if you're a massive company like a Google, Facebook, you have so much money, you have so much infrastructure, you have so much you have such financial protection that it would, it's going to take probably a year to two years by which point this should be over um, before you would really see, hey, we're falling off a cliff, right? In terms of, of being in serious trouble. And if you're really early, if it's just you and your co-founder working out of one of your apartments, and then now instead of working out of an apartment in a big city, you're moving somewhere where the rent is cheaper or you're moving home you know, to live with parents or, or relatives or whatever and not paying rent at all, you're actually almost in a better position, right? Because all of a sudden it's cheaper to hire people. It, maybe it's a little bit easier to raise money because you have more kind of attention of, of investors, particularly if you're outside of Silicon Valley. Your personal burn rate is way, 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 way lower. So for the really early stage companies, there was definitely an adjustment in shock like it was for all of us, but it basically consisted of calling your WeWork sales rep and saying, hey, we're moving out. The companies that have been disproportionately negatively impacted, I think, are the kind of series C companies where you're not super profitable yet. You're not sitting on loads of cash. You still need to go out and raise more rounds of funding or sell yourself and M&A activity and you know, mergers and acquisitions, people buying companies has stopped basically 100% right now. And it's really hard to get somebody to write you a 50 million or $100 million Series C check if you've never met them, right? Where it's a little bit easier to write a $500,000 check if you've never met somebody. And you have this entire structure org chart that's designed for in offices that you probably have five or 10 year leases on that's designed for a very particular kind of business that is now ground to a halt for two years, but you don't have two years of cash cushion. So like the growth stage companies have really, really, really been impacted super hard. For the most part, really, really early stage has been okay, if not doing well. And like really, really late, like publicly traded companies are okay. I was thinking about it was just in terms of like the future of income category, large category, since so many people have been out of work and whatnot, that I would have thought that, you know, you give the example of like the Etsy seller that would imagine that there was more people becoming freelancer or doing, you know, engaging like a passionate comedy that might help for some of your investments in those types of categories, if that makes sense. So to talk about the categories, right, instead of kind of the impacts on specific companies, talk about the categories broadly, right? Certainly both of my categories, they feel more vital than ever, right? So if before you kind of drove... Uber, you know, hey, it's it's Super Bowl Sunday, I'll make a couple extra hundred bucks. And now you got laid off and, you know, delivering Uber Eats is, is how you're making ends meet, right? Then then it becomes much more vital, right? If you were a VP at a big company in real estate and now they're laid a bunch of people off and now you say, well, I guess I'll be, I'll, I'll consult for people. Well, do I need an LLC? What does that look like? Those questions become much more vital. And the way that we think of non-W2 income kind of 1099 income, all of that goes from being sort of a nice to have to like a really important like lifeline. It might be the only way you're making money. And so that that category, you know, as a category has certainly grown in importance. And generally speaking, I think it takes investors a few months to see what new companies are there, right? Because if you started a company in April because of one of these trends that was started because of COVID, you're probably just now four months in 
starting to think about going out to fundraise, right? And that's when it would get on my radar, but we're certainly seeing some of that. In the complicated consumer category, the same thing, right? We have over 170,000 Americans who died during COVID. That's 170,000 people who have families next of kin, estates to settle, debts to settle, all of that. If you were like a relatively healthy 27-year-old who just aged out of your parents' health insurance and you don't have a full-time job and you were kind of like, eh, health insurance, whatever, I'll figure it out. All of a sudden, it feels much more vital than before where you might say, well, whatever, I just like won't get hit by a car and I'll be fine. Now you're like, no, literally, if somebody breathes on me wrong, I'm going to need health insurance. And so there's those things that, that we focus on. Student loan debt's another category, right? Being shut in with your partner has led to, to elevated divorce levels. That's something. So certainly for my categories writ large, um, I think all of us are spending far less time thinking about nice-to-haves right now, or we might be daydreaming about nice-to-haves, but we're, we're spending far less time kind of in our day-to-day worried about nice-to-haves, where's our next vacation, and we're spending a lot more time worried about our mental health, our health insurance, you know, how we're going to make money, and those are all the things I invest in, and, and so that is certainly, the timing has, you want to be proven right, but I would give anything to not be proven right in quite this way, but it is what it is, and so this is what we have, and, and we're seeing everything that I've been talking about and investing in for the past couple of years has come into like very, very, very painful light of like, yes, you were right. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I think and this is obvious, but I want to see more diversity in terms of who's investing. And, you know, we know that the diversity drives better returns in venture capital or in all investing and in all company building. And so there's certainly a moral argument there, particularly in this country. But the reality is I'm a capitalist. It's literally my job. My, my job isn't to help companies. My job is not even find companies. My job is to have investors give me money and I give them more money back. And if the best way to do that, if we know that data shows us that the best way to to drive returns is to have more diversity. I'm not doing my job correctly if I don't have more diversity. And my fund has a lot of it, but a lot of other funds don't. And so if you look at multi-billion dollar funds that are wildly successful, but don't have a diverse team around the table, the reality is they would be 30% more wildly successful if they did. I 100% agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, when I asked Soraya this question, what she said, it's also diversity to really see real change, which I think that you alluded to also has to start from the top and from the LPs about wanting to invest in more diverse funds and also have that trickle down and invest in more founders as well. Yeah. And we know that the data shows that the, the best indicator of what your portfolio will look like is what the investors look like. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, literally what the, what the investors look like. Race and gender of investors is the biggest indicator of race and gender of their portfolio. And that's not like a, oh, white dudes only invest in white dudes. That means that I'm more likely to invest in black women and an Indian man is more and less likely to invest in Indian men. In a, and that just is, right? And so, you know, we can kind of argue the nature versus nurture. How do we change the implicit bias? What do we do? What does that mean all day long? Because I have nothing but time. It's COVID. But the reality is that if that's what's happening, then the easiest way to fix some of these things is say, okay, I know that if, if Sarah, you as a black woman are more likely to invest in black women. And so the people that you have on your team, if they are all black women, then you're going to deeply over-index and invest in black women, which would be great. But if you want a diverse portfolio that's not just black women, then you need to bring in other people around the table. And if you bring in other people around the table, the odds are statistically that the people you invest in are going to look like those people. So if everybody's sort of investing in their mini-me, then if you get a bunch of different people around the table and it looks 
like a Benetton ad, then your portfolio will be diverse, even if no individual investor is being particularly diverse in their investment. I completely agree with that. And I love that. If you have a diverse investing team, then that makes sense that in terms of the founders, it would be a very, very diverse portfolio. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Sarah's full episode.